various things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Marty Key. Marty is the owner of Steady Sounds, which stood here in Richmond, Virginia, and became a fixture of Richmond culture in the 2010s. And also, Marty is a musician, starting out as the frontman for the Richmond punk group Bad Guy Reaction in the 1990s, and later playing bass for a whole host of bands, from Bratmobile to Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, Young Pioneers, and Live from Hollywood Cemetery. Music seems to play a big part in his life, so it's great to talk with him and get his thoughts on Richmond, the history of some of these bands, and the history of Steady Sounds. I had a great time talking with him. I hope you enjoy listening. I guess I just, I don't know, I always liked music, you know? Like, I was always, you know, really into listening to, I would listen to, like, uh, my mom and my uncle's, like, records they left in my grandmother's house, like, 45, so, like, Little Richard and Big Bopper and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I just, would, I'd, like, loved to play, you know, the 45s and, and uh, especially, like, old rock and roll for some reason that, like, really was something I was interested in um, and, like, old R&B and stuff. But my mother really wanted me to take piano lessons, which I did for a while, but I, I kind of hated playing piano. Mm-hmm. And my piano teacher had this, um, you know, like her, her husband, I guess maybe her husband or boyfriend, I don't know, but he was in the same, there, it was just like a this tiny house and this woman taught piano and her husband taught guitar. And it would happen at the same time sometimes. So I could see, like, her her husband, like, teaching someone guitar and he kept looking over and going, man, I, I kind of want to do that instead. And my mother was right. Really <laughs> you doing piano for some reason. I think because we had a piano, like my grandmother had a piano. So it was just like, I could practice on that. But, uh, you know, I didn't put my heart into it or anything. I learned fundamentals and, you know, that's about it. But so, you know, and I always wanted to play guitar. I never really got the chance to take lessons with them. Um, and, and I guess, I don't know, at some point just for some reason, drums really spoke to me. So I like, I was around 13, my mom found this guy who used to be in a country band, um, was like selling his drums at the street. It was like a 1970 Ludwig set. And I don't know how much it was, maybe like a couple hundred bucks or something. But, you know, she was like, you know, bought these drums. And was like, hey, I got you some drums, you know. And I was like, yeah, all right. You know, and of course, they, my parents were like not happy about <laughs> Right. You know, and they actually, within that year, they got a divorce. Um, so they were just kind of like in and out of the house. And I, so I got to play kind of like freely for a little while, you know, like, Hey, but eventually, uh, I was living with my dad and he was not too happy with me playing drums and having kids from the neighborhood come over and play punk rock in the basement. So I got kicked out of there, but <laughs> right. Cause the drummer's house is where everyone comes to. That's where everyone goes. Cause yeah, the drums are the most annoying thing to move. I mean, Amps are right. annoying, but at least you can pick them up. You know, drums are just sort of like, yeah, break them down, you know, reset them back up. So, yeah, it's like naturally you just have a drum set set up. And that's true. Like, in fact, there's like a lot of my friends where I, I grew up in Danville, Virginia, and mm-hmm. a lot of my friends in junior high and high school all like, you know, we all went to like the kids with the drums, you know. Um, right. And it was like. I just had, like, some crummy 1970s kit that, like, you know, was – it was a three-piece, and it was great. You know, I loved it. Um, but then we go to other kids' houses, and they had, like, these, you know, huge, like, sets, you know, like, and they had amps in their basements. <laughs> we were like, let's go over there and jam. And they hated it because they were all, like, skilled musicians, you know, like or, – or going to be, you know. We're all, like, 15, 16 or whatever, uh, 17. Right, right. But, but you know, these, these guys were like, we're, I'm going to make a career out of music. And we're just like, you know, let's play a Black Flag song. <laughs> <laughs> Ramones, let's play a Ramones song. You know, like, we were just like, you know, we were dumb. But uh, so I guess, like, you know, like, I got that drum kit. And that's when I kind of got more serious. Like, I was like, man, I really like this. And I love just getting together with some people and just making up songs. You know, I mean, we would try to do covers, but... You know, none of us were, like, real great at what we did. You know, a little bit of lessons here and there, and that's about it. But, like, so it made more sense to write music, you know, and write new songs. So so the first band I became aware of you in was in Bad Guy Reaction. And right. you played yeah. guitar in that, right? 
I did, yeah. I played guitar and, and sang. In so how did you but, pick that up? <laughs> you know, being that, I, you know, when I was in high school and I had to move my drums out to my grandmother's house, which was very convenient because she literally lived next door to me. Um, and also my, my dad was going to sell the house and my mother had already moved out and, and uh, you know, the house I grew up in. So it was natural. It's like, I, you know, uh, I ended up living with my grandmother for a while and I just, she had a basement, like a full basement. And I just set up drums down there. And, you know, it's like my, it was my grandmother and my aunt were living together at the time. My grandfather had passed and they were both kind of hard of hearing. So they didn't, they didn't care. And they liked the idea of like all these kids coming over. So, Kids would come over and fill up the basement. You know, there's always amps. Everyone would leave their stuff down there, you know, guitars and amps because nobody wanted to carry their stuff around. So naturally, I would just go down like late at night, you know, in my grandma's basement and just like kind of just start playing guitar or bass or whatever, you know, like just kind of teaching myself. Um, oh, cool. Like I would a lot of times just like listen to like a tape of something, you know, super chunk or something, you know, I'd just be like, I try to learn the riff, you know, or how they're playing it. It was literally just because stuff got left in my basement, you know. And also, like, around that time, you know, this is, like, 89, 90, 91. Like, people were just giving, getting rid of shit, you know. Like, uh, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. I'm sorry if I'm cursing. I'm oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, you could go to a guitar store and, like, literally people, because they just wanted some new PV stuff or whatever, like, you could get uh, an SG from the '60s for like you know whatever, like two hundred fifty dollars. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, things were like, crazy. Were just, yeah, it's crazy. Like the equipment, like you could get for nothing. Like, you know, I remember buying like a Silvertone. You know, one of the like, uh, you know, piggyback Silvertones. You know, where you put the amp in the back of the. Yeah, thing. and I, I think it was like fifty bucks or something. You know, it was like dirt cheap. So. It was easy to get the stuff that people were just getting rid of that maybe most people would be like at the time, like, oh, that's garbage, you know. But to me, my friends were like, oh, this is great, you know. <laughs> Look at all this cheap yeah. equipment we get, and it looks cool, you know. Uh, so, you know, I just started, like, buying random cheap guitars, which I wish I still had. But, uh, you know, I'm just teaching myself. And so by the time I ended up going to school in Richmond of ECU, you know, I show up on campus and just kind of knew a few people here and there, like a few people I've met. Um, it was like a Green Day show that happened. Uh, I think it was, I think it was around like the summer, right before VCU started. And then I kind of met some people like uh, Dave Grant from Action Patrol and Dave, I think Dave Garrett actually met that show too, the drummer of Bag of Reaction. Um, but, you know, I met, like, all these random people at that Green Day show. And, was that the uh, show that uh, Fun Size played with them? I can't remember who opened up. I just remember it was Green Day, and at the time, it was just, like, they were, like, poised to be, like, huge, you know? Like, sure, sure, yeah. We all liked them. Um, I just remember that show, like, there was this stage diver. This guy got totally naked, and he stage dove, and nobody would catch him because he was, like, a sweaty, lumpy white dude, you know, jumping on stage, and he just, like, hit like face down on the oh, twisters wow. like uh floor you know what you remember like at twisters like half of the floor was like uh tile <laughs> yeah <laughs> he just like flopped down right there like just face down it was like just kind oh, of wow. nasty. yeah and like people had to help him up and take him outside and he's like naked and <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i don't even who knows who that guy was but uh yeah, so I met some people there. Oh, Greg Benedetti, too. I think I met at that show. And uh, so I guess, you know, when I when I started at ECU, I kind of already knew those guys, and they were like, hey, let's start a band. And it's funny, because I don't think any of us, like, really knew, like, whether anybody could actually play anything. Like, I didn't know. Like, it was just more just, like, some guys that were all in the same type of music, you know. We were all into, like, punk and hardcore and stuff, and I mean, I don't even know if I knew Greg played bass. Maybe he was like, oh, yeah, I play bass or something. You know, like, I never saw him play. I never saw right. Dave play. I never saw KC play. <laughs> you know, right. Like, I think he had a guitar in his apartment. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, okay, we're starting this band. So, you know, I, I don't even remember how we even got together totally. Like, 
And then we used to practice in our drummer Dave's like apartment, which is like right on the corner of uh, it was on Park and ah, wait, I'm trying to remember the, the cross. It was a basement apartment that we practiced in. Okay. And I think that was like where we first got together. And Dave was like, yeah, well, this like really crummy little like, drum kit. It looked like probably found in the alley. <laughs> you know? And he lived with a couple of guys who were real into like shoegaze and like indie rock. And so he would just jam with them. And then we'd come over and play our loud, obnoxious music. And then, you know, so that's kind of like how that started, I guess. Uh, experience like when you guys started playing shows and stuff um you guys seem to play a decent amount of shows you know we it took a while to get our footing you know i mean we were never technically the greatest band in the world. <laughs> it was sort of like a bunch of you know it was like four misfits trying to like start a punk band but uh like i think it just at that time in richmond it was just easy to get shows like like, like to me it was like moving to richmond i was just like the one band I knew about mostly was Avail. Like, and I knew about like other bands like Four Walls Falling and New Inquisition, but it was kind of exciting going to the city that Avail's from, you know, and Avail was already sure. kind of like this enigma. And I, you know, seen them and it was like, wow, oh, this, this, what an awesome band, you know. Like, to me, it was just like, it was like Richmond Chukazi or something. And, but, but, you know, it was like when I come to Richmond, I'm kind of like, yeah, there's not like really, like the scene seemed very disjointed or like it had, kind of was like was dead or something you know like there was like inquisition but like it was either you were like this huge band or there and there was no other bands it was just like here's what was falling they would play a show and it'd be like 400 people there and then they'll be like a thousand people and inquisition would always be huge but then there wasn't like any other bands like it was kind of strange so besides like i think like your scene which was like your kids in like junior high basically right <laughs> That's kind yeah of like where yeah you were at yeah basically yeah. Like, but I, yeah. but I'd heard, I, I talked to people that had kind of been there around 90, 91. They said it had kind of died here during that time. It, and it and only, yeah. yeah. And around when my generation or my group, whatever came in, it, it was really like when, like right around the time that, you know, 94, like 93, 94, when, when Green Day was, was actually starting to break and kind of broke punk open you know, in kind of like that major, um, you know, label way, um, there seemed to be more of an influx of stuff like that. But like, yeah, talking to folks that had kind of been through that, they said it was pretty, pretty dead for a minute from like 88 to like maybe like 92, 93. Yeah, it, it definitely, it definitely was like that. It, at least when I moved to Richmond, it was like 92. It, it was certainly like, it just, as I say, like it was like these huge bands, or to me, like, is like, you know, like locally big, you know, big fish, right. you know, small pond. But, but yeah, there wasn't like any other band. Like, there wasn't like any smaller bands, you know, like there was, there was no like real scene. It was very disjointed. It was weird. And it seemed like drugs really were like kind of the main thing. Like, like the original like punks in Richmond, early 80s, you know, late 70s, early 80s, kind of like went on to do other stuff like musically that were like, doing indie rock or whatever they were doing, you know? Right. Um, either that or they just, like, drugs took their toll, you know, in the town. Right. Like, seemed pretty strong. Like, it, uh, yeah, it was weird. So, I, you know, I was a little confused, but I had my, fr you know, like, I met Pat and Ben, uh, you know, from Whirly Bird, and they, sure, were, yeah. they were starting up, they were doing the things, they were, you know, jolly mortals. But it wasn't like, right. you know, and all, all those guys were from different places. You know, they weren't from Richmond. They were like, it was all because we started college together and these were the band, you know, like all these people from other towns and all, we're all meeting and like, Hey, let's have, you know, let's start a band or whatever. And so I think that's, you know, the start of it, you know, Natural Patrol was basically like, I, you know, uh, Chris, the guitar player was living in Williamsburg. He was going to William and Mary at the time. So that's, you know, they were just starting up. Um, they were kind of, by the time Bad Action was already playing shows is when they were starting to like formulate their band. So mm -hmm. then it started happening, you know, and I feel like, and also with all, all you guys, you know, with fun size and, you know, like, like all the bands from that scene, you know, like all of a sudden starting to play Twisters and doing shows and then it, then it kind of built back up. But right. yeah, it was weird. Like, like 
the shows that were come to town, you know, it would be like some out of town band and then no opener because they just weren't any bands. <laughs> kind of, it was weird, you know? Um, so, or it's just, you know, something thrown together by somebody. I mean, you know, Richmond's always had like some sort of a weird thing, you know, like there's, I mean, think about Guar, you know, for instance, you know, it's like there's always been a history of these like big bands coming out of Richmond, but but it's like, that's it. And you, so you're assuming like, wow, I'm going to go to Richmond where all these bands are from, you know? And you're like, Oh, there's like five bands in this, <laughs> you know? And I grew up like going to North Carolina to go to shows. So I'll go to house shows and cat's cradle and Chapel Hill and like weird oh, clubs sure, yeah. and spaces down there. And there seemed to be a plethora of bands, you know, like you go to Dick street house in Greensboro and there was always like great, like, you know, hardcore bands and like there's so many bands from that area. Uh, and I just assumed like Richmond was going to be like that too. And it kind of wasn't, but then it, you know, it eventually got there back then, especially it had such a, you know, it had this art school. So it had a lot of things attracted to it, like creative people, people that just, you know, wanted to try and do, maybe do something different, especially at that time in their lives, they're probably going to make music. But then it also had this really oppressive, like the city was so like the city did not really accept its art school. And, you know, like I remember they kind of wanted to like basically shut down and destroy like remotely anything related to art music or anything like that. You know, maybe because of ABC violations and stuff like that. But I told you, you hit it, you hit it on the nail on the head. It's like, uh, I always thought it was a weird dichotomy of like, like we're going to have this art school and it's going to be the biggest one in Virginia and it's going to attract people from all over the world essentially but we're also going to see what we can do to just not fund it or just to, <laughs> to make, make sure nothing creative could happen you know and like just squash any kind of creativity you may have um from listening to like especially even dudes who went back to like late 60s VCU, you know, like I guess yeah. when it changed over from Virginia Polytechnic to Virginia Commonwealth and right. like, and you know, I, I met some total weirdos from that scene who were just doing some weird shit. There was like this band called Titsville Thunderbolt who put out 145 back then, like in uh, early seventies. But you know, those, those guys were like, you know, and they went on to do like other I mean, they still play music, you know, they're like in, you know, seventies, you know, playing music, but you know, even then it's like, it, it's just like youthful defiance. Like, it's like the more you try to squash something, the more people are going to fight it. And also at the same time, you know, do something super creative. And those guys are just totally out of their mind. Just like, I mean, they opened up for Alice Cooper. <laughs> they were so wow. They're like, get them to open up for Alice Cooper. And they ended up playing some shows of Alice Cooper. But yeah, it's like any any kind of scene like that. That probably helped, you know, in a way. Because if everyone's like living in like some sort of like utopian paradise of just like I could be as creative as I want to be, you know, it's like there isn't any kind of real tension. Like it's hard to be that creative if you have nothing to fight against. Right. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing about like punk in like '84, like the Reagan era and stuff like that. Like you know, you like it was so. So oppositional, you know, like a lot of that kind of fight back kind of thing um, seemed to really kind of fuel it. And and when things were kind of more just kind of not really crazy politically, it, it seemed like those are the times when punk kind of had a harder time existing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, completely. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, that, yeah, I guess that was always my argument, though, with this, like, the hardcore scene, you know, when it kind of got revived in mid aughts, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, and all these kids, it's like, what are you fighting against? What are you so angry about? You know? Like, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's always something to fight against, but you know, it's sort of like, you know, life's not too bad right now. I mean, there's, there, there's some things to complain about, obviously. Like, it's like, where are they now? You know, it's like, now we really need you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, that, that that's a very interesting thing that happened there, though. It really, things got pretty, you know, chilled out comparatively for a while. And then, you know, in the last five or six years, I think the, the amount of unrest is kind of like unparalleled, you know, in the in the last 20, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And you're like starting it, to see it was, this. Yeah, it came full on. Yeah, it's just like, 
it was like it went from like zero to sixty. You know, it's just like you know, things are getting a little bit better, and life's getting a little bit better. Then it's just like, oh shit, <laughs> right? You run right into the fire. You know, you're like you yeah. didn't even have time to think about it. And uh, as so, kind of jumping back to music for a second. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, when did uh, when did Bad Guy break up? Like, did y'all ever go on tour or anything like that, or? Um, how did y'all kind of go through it and then and end? Well, yeah, we did shows. We did some out of town shows. Um, I wouldn't say we never did any real tours, but we would do like weekends. You know, we'd play like we played Harrisonburg a few times, which is always great. And I had friends that went to school there, um, and so it was like easy to do a show. And it was a really awesome little uh, like it was like this. Um, I don't know if it was like fully vegetarian, but it was like kind of like a hippie, like uh little like diner that had shows that was really cool. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Like back in the day, I, I think it's actually it's still there. I'm not sure. Like different owners, but uh, so, you know, we played Carisberg and Roanoke because Casey was from Roanoke. So, you know, we played in Roanoke and we even played in Danville, I think a couple times. Um, we played Chapel Hill. Um I think that was kind of the extent of like right. where where we played. Um, oh no, and we did this weird show in 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 uh, Delaware and Dover. Oh and wow! I'm not, even, I'm not even sure how we got the show. I have no idea, but it was like a it was like a school thing. It was like kind of the end of the semester or or the school year event, and so bands were playing outside. And all I remember was there was like a little PA set up. And it was literally in a patch of, like, we had to set up in a bunch of mulch. It was just, like, this giant, like, pile of mulch. It was really weird. And, uh, yeah, we played there. Yeah, I think that was probably about as far as we got. Oh, wow. <laughs> North, at least. And then as far as south as we got, is like, oh, we played, and played like, Raleigh. I remember at the brewery. Um, uh and I think I think that's kind of it. So we did, you know, we would do like weekends, but we never did an actual tour or anything. Not like a full tour. Like I think three shows about as far as we ever got. And then I know you guys like split up like was like ninety five. Yeah, I guess yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, probably ninety five. Um, yeah, we had a little little bit of a falling out. Uh, Greg, Greg and I had a little bit of falling out. Uh, no worries. Which, which I, you know, like, and then you know, now it's like, you know, I, you know, everything was patched up after you know a while. But you know, that's when Casey. I think Casey and Greg were kind of like in. They were already sort of like in. You know, had an idea of doing their own thing anyway. From what I could tell, you know, with War Dance Orange, and then. Uh, you know, and I think Dave Dave was never like fully into it, I don't think. I don't know, you'd have to ask him, but like I think it was just sort of like a fun thing for him to do. Like I get to play drums. But uh I mean I think it was just like already you know, like it's like a it was like a butterfly. It wasn't as supposed to live that long, you know. Yeah. And uh it was nice when it was around. <laughs> but uh we all want yeah, we're young. We all wanna do other things, you know. And I think like with War Dance Orange that was more fitting of Greg and Casey's what what they wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably didn't. I probably wanted to be less punkish, I guess. I you know, right. Uh, and then say Dave was just Dave. He just went along with whatever. <laughs> like, right. you know, he, I say, but he probably would have been happy. He'd been like kind of like a, in a sort of a jingle rock band or something, you know. Uh, either that or the Melvins, you know. I don't think there was a real in between with them, but. Uh, yeah, so it just sort of ended, and it was like it ended literally. It wasn't their discussion. It was just sort of like overnight. Greg and I had a fight. That was the end of the band, and yeah, that's how they end. That's how they end. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know a lot of bands aren't like they don't sit down and be like, yeah, maybe we should stop doing this. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to have like thirty years under under your band when you start like making decisions like that. It seems yeah, like everything exactly. else like, seems to be like yeah. Those are like full. Those are financial decisions too. Those are right. like it's like, well, you know, we uh, you know, we owe this money money on taxes. We owe a lot of money to this person. Or whatever. Oh, yeah, we should probably end the band, you know, instead of just sort of like. 
an argument. How we yeah. ended, which was yeah, in the middle of the night was an argument. So. So after that, you went and started playing. Um, did you go straight to the Young Pioneers after that? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, like uh, Tim Barry from Vale, of course. Um, he was playing bass with them. But, you know, Vale was, like, busy. So I think he just was like, I, you know, I can't commit to something like this. And, I, you know, at the time, I don't think Young Pioneers was, like, going to be even, like, a real touring project or anything that, like, Adam or Brooks were thinking about like we really want to take this on the road. We want to do this and that. It was more just so sort of like uh, maybe we'll record some records, you know, and see how it goes. Right. And then so yeah, my reaction when we broke up, I remember talking to Tim about it, and then Tim like mentioned to uh, to Adam, just like, oh hey, you know, I can't do this anymore. Why don't you get this guy? He like just left the band, and you know, I knew Adam and Brooks, you know, but. You know, I I didn't think I'd end up in the band or anything, but <laughs> uh, so I think it just happened like that. They were just like, "Oh, I'll try them out," and then after the first practice, they're like, "All right, you're in the band." So <laughs> it was easy. Oh hell yeah. yeah! Yeah, that was very different musically, and I mean, for for all y'all, like, I mean, Adam and Brooks coming from they were in Born Against before. Um, I don't think they did anything between the those two bands, right? Not really. Well, Brooks was in Universal Order of Armageddon during that same oh, okay. time. Okay. Um, yeah. So he was he was already doing that, and in fact, he was in UOA about you know the same time as even Born Against. Like for the most part, like they were because uh, Tony from UOA was playing bass in Born Against at the very end. Um, just Adam wanted to do something totally different. Um, Brooks, I think, just again, you know, being a drummer. And he just wanted to play drums. <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, he's just like, whatever you want to do, we'll just do it. And, uh, you know, so it was a totally different spectrum. But still, but in a way, like, it's, you know, it was, it's punk, you know. I mean, yeah. like, it, it it was going back to its, you know, actual roots, I guess, you know. It was a very odd type of music because it, it did have super, like, super political lyrics. You know, like they they kind of be like almost like um, very specific like kind of stories, but there'd be like this kind of really heavy like kind of political overtone to them. But then yeah, also yeah. the sound was like more country or like it was a weird sound, like a really interesting sound. Right? Yeah. Well, Adam was just like I think it was his. You know, I think I think it's what is commonly referred to as his folk punk now. But, no. Yeah. yeah, but it, it didn't have <laughs> that. I mean, when when people when people talk about folk punk now, I mean that is so it's so different from what that was, a, <laughs> right? You know, like there is a band, there's a formula now for that. You know, almost like ska or something like that. Like there's a there's like a banjo and like a <laughs> washboard yeah, and, and, and like, an accordion. You know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Like uh, I, you, you know, you can look at the the logo and tell that what the band sounds like and this kind of thing and. Right. um yeah, you guys were, it was really weird. I remember a lot of my friends, um, you know, when, when that first record came out, um, it did cross over into like a lot of the kids that wanted, you know, like hardcore punk. Like there was something that was, you know, very much in the same way a veil does, you know, um, there was something, there was substance there. You could tell, you know, but it did definitely take you into like a much more like musically structured, like kind of thing. Yeah, it, it was funny because, like, I think also just the fact that the songs, you know, like most of the songs were under two minutes, <laughs> you know? right? So, you know, it's, and that that you know the you know the punk sensibility, you know, like the people were kind of like, oh god, you know, it's like what's up with these guys? It's like, oh, well, the songs are like they only play fifteen minutes, and their songs are like two minutes a piece. So, right. like, what is this? Is this punk or is this, you know, like, is this hardcore? I mean, you know, and like Adam, you know, obviously this is like not trying to like play down. Like, I think at first he had this idea. I'm like, I'm going to do something quieter and acoustic. And then by the time I was in the band, he's just like, fuck that. You know, like, I'm just, I'm going to crank my Marshall JCM 800 up and just, you know, very, right. It's going to be a rock band. You know? <laughs> like, you know, and I like, I, I was really into that. I mean, obviously I was like enamored of the fact that like, wow, I'm playing with, 
Adam and Brooks, you know, like these are like right. heroes of mine, you know, like these are people I really respected. Like Born Against is like one of my favorite bands ever. And at that point, I was like really obsessed with them. And, you know, it was just like I couldn't believe I was playing music with them. And then, but that was like, he was like, oh, we're just going to write these songs. are going to be like two minutes or less. <laughs> you know, like it's going to sound this way. Most of it I'm ripping off from Bob Dylan or <laughs> like right. Nelly or from, you know, like, uh, you know, it's like I, I'm just, you know, we're just going to appropriate all this music <laughs> from other people and then uh, we're going to make a punk band around it. You know, it's like I, I was kind of really into that idea. And, and I'd say like those in the lyrics, too, it's like he he kind of put himself and other people around him in like the political context in a lot of the songs, you know, so like they were kind of personal, a lot of them, you know, like and a lot of them was like. Or our political events are like relevant to what was happening in all of our lives, his life, and well, you know, like or what was happening in the world. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad that Tim ditched out of that. <laughs> First one. How did you find the shift from that? Because with Bad Guy, you were um, singing, you were the front person, and then you know, also playing guitar. All of a sudden, now you're kind of like you know, in this band where you're playing bass and kind of like, that's like kind of Adam's baby. Did you enjoy that more? Like, cause I know like sometimes we, you know, as musicians and whatever, like we'll find ourselves in these situations and we do them kind of out of the situation. Like I, I started singing because our singer quit. So I had like 15 minutes to start singing. Um, Right. Like, he quit at a show. <laughs> like he quit oh, five well, minutes before we yeah. start playing. And, like, yeah, that's, you know, but it can at least give you 10 minutes. I mean, come on. Right. You know, but like <laughs> those little things, you end up kind of, you know, they end up being kind of like, you know, situational. But then you find yourself in these other situations as time goes on and you might fit, find they fit your personality more. They might actually make you more happy, even though you can do, you know, the front person thing. Like, how was that for you, that switch? Did, which, which one do you seem to enjoy more, do you think? I liked I liked not being a front man. Um, I, and, you know, I'm not even sure exactly how even a bigger reaction that happened. Because there was even a time when KC was trying. I think it was just because I was, like, the only one who could do it, like, play and say. I mean, I guess Greg could, too, but he didn't seem that motivated to do that. But right, KC, you know, like, he even had a song where he's saying it. And uh, I think we are just trying to figure out who was best suited for that job. And somehow, I guess I was. But, uh and you know it puts all the weight on you, obviously. But um, I actually like the fact that, like, you know, uh, you know, it's like all of a sudden it's just like, you know, oh, I'm just playing bass. And at first with Young Pioneers, it was like Adam already we already had all these songs. You know, we, there was a whole album out, you know, of music. So he and he always wanted to write new stuff. So it was kind of nice to be part of that process, but not having to like come up with the lyrics and do you know, like he he just had like a notebook full of lyrics and. You know, he was like ready to go. You know, we just needed music, and it was really kind of nice just being in like I just want to write music. I don't have to sing and come with the lyrics and everything. You know, like, um, and one thing I've learned throughout life, <laughs> throughout my musical career, is that people always need bass players. So <laughs> that's like the that's like the one job you know that like nobody seems to ever want to do. Like nobody wants to be the bass player, but I've pretty much like. Because of being a young pioneers, I just got like, I just became a bass player, you know. And people were like, just like, oh, we need a bass player for this. I'm like, all right, you know. And it just kept steamrolling. rolling. Um, well, it's crazy because that's a really crucial, like, part of, particularly a three piece, but even a four piece. I mean, any rock band, like, if the bass is off, like, that's the difference between the song working and not really. True, true. You can cover up bad a bad bass player if you have a really good drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you kind of do need, yeah, like it makes a big difference. Um, and especially when the drummer and the bass player are definitely in, in sync, it's just sort of like magical. Especially yeah, that can, play, that can be the band right there. Like if, like if you have those two things, like. Yeah, you know, it's it's true. And it's just like if, you got, if you're tight in the rhythm section, it's like, you know, when you're playing rock or soul you know you're that's that's it i mean everybody else could do whatever they want to but to go back to the young pioneers part it was like it was kind of nice just like i have you know all that the weight of that on there and 
you know, I could kind of just help write some music and, you know, and having played guitar sort of, you know, makes it easier to, to help write. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of bands I'm in or have been in, you know, a lot of times I was just like, basically like the bass player quit. I would just join the band. And I never really wrote a lot of music. I mean, a couple of bands, you know, we had to write a new album and I was kind of helped with the writing process, but Young Pioneers, I probably did more of that than any other band that was in. So what was the next, after Young Pioneers, what was the next band that you really felt like you were like a part of? Um, well, I guess, because I took like a, I didn't play a lot. Like I did, there was uh, Trixie Delicious and The Lot Lizards that I played guitar right. in. Which we play and we played a lot of shows around and like Chris Terry was in the band. I don't know if you uh know Chris. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Like he, he was in the band it was kind of a rotating actually K C was in the band for a little while. Um really? so, so yeah, back air action came back around. <laughs> you know. Oh wow. And then but we it was a rotating cast of characters. Like and in fact I wasn't Chris Terry was in the band originally and then I joined and he quit and then you know, it was just like I was in it till about the end. But I wasn't originally even in the, uh, you know, the original lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, yeah, and that was a fun band. That was a really cool band. And uh, then um, I toured a lot with uh, the band Bratmobile, um, just like right. touring with them and stuff. And I ended up getting to play on one of their records, which was really fun. I never played live with them, but just just uh, on their last record. Um, They're from D.C., right? Sort of, yeah. Um, Olympia, Olympia by way of D.C., but um, two of the members are originally from, like, D.C., Bethesda. Um, okay. And Allison, the singer, is originally from, you know, uh, Tennessee by way of Olympia, Washington. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I moved to New York, and uh, I ended up in this band, that, a band my, my, my wife was in called Tra La La, and mm-hmm. that was again a situation where it's like, uh, you know, the the bass player had quit, and they're like, "Oh, you can play bass. We can play this band." And so we wrote a new album, and I, you know, like helped write some of the music and that. And, you know, that was that was fun. Um, and in between, there was this band I did called Direct from Hollywood Cemetery, right? Which, which has a lot of different. Yeah, like just started in Richmond and then ended up in Brooklyn. So you were in New York at the time. Was this when they moved to Brooklyn? Well, what happened originally was we had started in Richmond, and we were and most of the band was living at 1208 Franklin Street and Freddy Punk House and <laughs> Franklin Street. Uh, so it was just supposed to be like a Halloween party band, like it, like literally we're just doing like covers of songs. You know, just doing like Sonics and Misfits and, you know, like 13 Full Elevators. So, you know, like some garagey stuff and some punk stuff. And it was supposed to be just like, we're just going to play this Halloween party at our house. So we okay. did that. And then that kind of steamrolled into people like, like, are you playing again? And we were like, I guess we could. We could play. So we ended up playing more shows after that. And, uh, Basically, like, well, you know, after we play a couple of shows, everyone kind of moves away, you know, everyone's doing their thing. But basically, the majority of the band, besides the drummer uh, and the bass player, moved to Brooklyn. So we were just kind of like, hey, why don't we start that band again? That was pretty fun. We'll play a Halloween party. And so it, was, it basically started again. <laughs> it's like we were like only going to play a party and, you know, just do covers or whatever. And it just, people kept asking the, you know, if we're going to play again or wanting to book shows for us. So it just steamrolled into us playing more shows, writing original material. We put out a single, uh, we were going to put out an album. We had recorded an album's worth of stuff that never came out. Yeah. It was kind of, it was kind of weird, but it was one of those things where like, I think all of us were just sort of like, I got busy. I ended up joining Tedley and the Pharmacist. Everyone else in the other band, like Dave Grant from Maximum Control was a singer, and he, he you know, he's a busy guy. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. he was doing other stuff musically. Um, I think we all just got real busy. Um, people started having kids, you know. Um, so that, that kind of just ended. But uh, 
It was fun. It was fun to do it. It was just odd that like this thing that originally started as one show, we were just going to play a party. Right. Like, turned into like a decade long, like, <laughs> sort of like weird project that ended up recording, you know, it's just, it was very strange. That's interesting too, that it happened at 12.8 because Ben uh, lived there. Right, he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And he, he did the whole Psycho '78 thing for a bit. Yes, which which may be the first Mrs. Tribute band that I've ever heard of at that point. Yeah, um, yeah I mean that was kind of awesome. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, yeah, for real, for real. They were great. Yeah, they were really good. So yeah, Ben Ben lived at 1208 before. Well, it was before I lived there. Um, okay, but uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I was first band people I met there, like him, like when, um, uh, Willie Bird was kind of like based out of there. So the other big part of you, or kind of your story, your journey is, um, you started running a record store. How did you go from Brooklyn to opening up Steady Sounds down here? Uh, well, I started, well, I, yeah, I worked at Plan 9 for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like the cycle of like, you know, like when I first moved to Richmond, I was kind of like, where's the scene, you know? And then we built it up and, you know, like a whole cast of people, you know, built it up, a lot of moved away, a lot of things happened. Like, and I felt like when I, around like 2002, 2003, I was kind of like, like, man, like nothing's happening in this town anymore. Like everyone's gone. Everyone moved. Everyone moved to New York or, or went to LA or like just moved away or Chicago. Yeah. You know, and I just felt like it just like it started dying again, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there's always like, you know, the younger version of me, <laughs> you know, is like moving to town and like, I'm going to, you know, like I'm so excited about doing this DJing or making music or making beats or whatever they do, you know? Yeah. Um, they're just excited to be in a crowd of people. I was just getting burned out, I guess. And, so I just needed a change of pace and uh, decided to move to Brooklyn. I had a friend who was living in a loft space up there, and she's like, oh, you know, we have space in our loft, you know, move up. And uh, so I did. And I ended up getting a job at this record store called Academy up there. and uh, Worked there for a long time, got married. Um, and uh, my wife and I just decided to move back to Richmond. Um, and... Uh, at the time, uh, my friend Drew that I worked at Plan 9 with mm-hmm. um, was interested in opening a record store and asked me if I wanted to help him out. So we started Steady Sounds together, and then I ended up becoming the full owner of it a few years later. And uh, So, yeah, I mean, that's like, you know, the long and short of it, I guess. How is that? Like, um, so, you know, I mean, for years, we... we you know, we've seen record stores go away and everyone said they're dead. And, you know, all, you know, I remember when I think like tower was kind of like the last thing here that kind of like when they closed, it was kind of like a, Oh, all right. Um, and independence generally have kind of existed regardless of what's been happening. But how was that like uh, getting in? I mean, you guys kind of focused more on vinyl and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pretty much all all vinyl and or, you know, like ephemera and stuff like, you know, like T-shirts and, you know, like finding just old flyers and stuff like that. Uh, Yeah. You know, well, the the funny thing is, is about like the record stores is just like how many that exist and they merely exist because there's a market of weirdos out there who want to buy records, you know. Right. uh, You know, and you you think about it, even like when I was at Plan 9, it's like you the dollar bin would just be lousy with like Steely Dan records and, you know, uh, you know, whatever, like Billy Joel and stuff. Like that stuff now that people are like looking for, but then nobody wanted. People were like looking for old hardcore records or old jazz records or, you know, looking for old soul records, you know. So that was the market was just obscure, weird records you don't normally see, you know that people are looking for. And it's definitely changed. Now it's like, you know, the stuff you were putting in a dollar bin is now 10 or $15 and, you know, more. And, right. Uh, 
and even though there's still is obviously a collector's market and people want the rare stuff, but it's like now it's like the normal stuff that you didn't that you passed up is like what people want. But yeah, the record store, I mean, Plan 9 Academy was the same way. I started seeing it there where I was like, oh, people seem to be buying a lot of these ELO records all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> and uh, you, know, you can see like the casual, like, like, like more like people going like, records are kind of cool. I should go buy right. them. And they're going to their dollar bins. I'm like, wow, I've got every Steely Dan record. And it only cost me $10 or what, you know, just to use that as right. an example. But, and then you start pricing it up. And, and even like at uh, you know when I had steady sounds, you know there's things like Eagles records where you know I throw them in the dollar bin at first, and then I started noticing people really buying them. Like I put them out there and they were gone in like ten minutes, and it's like, hmm, maybe I should start marking those up because, you know, even though the Eagles sold like millions of records, you know, there's there's a finite amount out there. You know, eventually you're gonna run out. You know, like they're gonna yeah. end up in collections or just you know they're just not. You're gonna stop seeing them. Um, yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of funny because, yeah, literally at Plan 9, I just remember just like, you know, you, you get the rare stuff in and that was it. The rest of it was all like, yeah, dollar bin or you throw it out, you know, because literally no one wanted it. You know, I had friends who did want to get like, you know, like it was Zeppelin records were 2 or $3, you know, then it's just like, you just see them every day, you know, because everyone's just unloading their collections. And you, you're just sitting around waiting for like that weird rare prog record to come in. You know, you don't care about that stuff. And <laughs> now it's like, it's like, oh wow, look at the whole collection of just nothing but like late seventies, early eighties rock. This is great. <laughs> this is like well, gold. I, mean, I, I guess it makes sense because those, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to think about something like vinyl because it really, like, you know, if you get like a, uh, I don't know, like a Led Zeppelin record or something, like out of the dollar bin or whatever nowadays well i mean it wouldn't go a dollar bin but it's had so many owners now you know? know and and, yeah. and like it's never i mean it's like a 40 or 50 year old record you know like i i think the original impetus for them being in the dollar bin was that they there were just so many of them out there there were there's so many of them and then and and most people who wanted that stuff then moved on to cds they just bought a cd of it you yeah know, they weren't of course. that they don't need the record anymore or like you know, the, it was always like, well, my needle broke, and uh, so I didn't need these anymore. You know, it's like, right. well, you know, you can replace a needle. <laughs> yeah, understandable. Yeah, you just want to get rid of them. But, uh, yeah, it was just quantity. It was just like every day. I mean, even David Bowie records, you know, like it, those stayed out of the dollar bin for the most part. But, you know, obviously people still wanted them. But, I mean, it would be like, you know, working at Plan 9 every day, people bring boxes of records. And you're like, how many copies of you know, hunky dory, for instance, that you're going to get in a day. You know, it was like it was like that. It was kind of crazy. You just would see multiple copies of all this stuff all the time. And I know things have gotten crazy with vinyl pressing. Um, I know when we uh, I went to do a seven inch recently, the wait time, like the pressing time, was like a year. And one of the factors in that was I, I think like five or six years ago, a lot of the majors kind of discovered vinyl again too and started pressing all their catalogs. So instead of yeah, yeah. the indies being kind of the ones driving this and maybe some of the, you know, more uh, niche or whatever um, majors, like now Jay-Z's got like, a, you know, all his records getting pressed or whatever. Um, how did, how did you see that kind of affect the market? Well, I mean, I don't, I've, I've put out some records in the past. I mean, I haven't done anything like since the pandemic, but right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, I, you know, there's like a lot of just junk out there. Like, I mean, they're repressing like stuff that you can still find for a dollar, you know, like I'm trying to think of examples, but Oh, you know, like even I went to target around Christmas time this year, you know, they had all these repressed, like Christmas records that like you can still get like in a dollar bin, like a perfectly great, analog copy <laughs> you know like wow like next to nothing you know it's like why are you repressing it and charging 25 dollars for it well, well i think that answers itself <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right you know it's like it's so all it does yeah to make it makes it harder for everyone else to be able to you know press their own records i mean i think the first record i ever put out was like this ride coalition maximilian colby split and I think when I sent 
the songs in to be mastered and got the test pressing and got the records, it was like two months, you know. The turnover was like so fast. And yeah, it seems like all my friends, they have to, you know, like you said, you have that problem with a year. It's like, yeah, they're waiting like nine months to a year just to get like a single or something pressed. Yeah, I think like a plastic plant exploded too in like 2021, like a, a, uh, a, there a was, part yeah. supplier. There was, there was, yeah, there was like a factory that like went up in smoke, yeah. And it's interesting because it seems like more people are getting into pressing vinyl because I know there's like a couple of pressing plants that opened up in, in Virginia. In the right, last yeah, there's one out couple years. the western side of the state now um, that a friend was telling me about. And that's yeah, there's one in Harrisonburg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's one in, uh, well, there's there's Furnace, which originally was just doing a lot of CDs and tape dupe, um, and they do vinyl. They're in, like, northern Virginia. Right. Um, I, but I don't think a lot of these places, even a place in Harrisonburg, maybe they don't have that many presses. I mean, presses are like, it's not like people make them. You know, they're not like cars, you know. It's like they come off the assembly line, you know. Like, yes, yeah, that's a lot what of them are surprised like me. old technology. <laughs> like, yeah. Like how they were even able to do that because no one makes these things anymore. And the same thing with the, um, well, the mastering lathes. Like a lot of, uh, I was doing mastering for a little while, just CD mastering. But I ended up having some friends that did vinyl. And you know, if you're if you're getting into that, like, I think the newest machine that you could buy was maybe made in the '80s. Like the yeah, lathe to actually cut the mastering record, you know. So it's like yeah, you have to like start manufacturing your own parts to just even be able to cut a record. Sometimes, yeah, just to repair this machine. Yeah, hey, my my friend Chris, who played guitar in Action Control, built the lathe himself, and he's been like oh, for just, cutting. Yeah, for cutting. Yeah, um, oh he sent God. me one like this. Uh, it was like a piece of plexiglass that he recorded a song on, and he just like sent it to me like a, you know, on his homemade lathe. What does it sound like? Um, it's it's pretty grainy sounding, <laughs> right? It's uh, it skips at one point, but uh, you know, he just did it literally on like a piece of like scrap plexiglass he found, and he just like cut it on there, and like uh, it. But it's cool. Yeah, you know, it sounds like a seventy-eight. It's a kind of a scratchy seventy-eight. It's kind of it's kind of cool. I mean, it's a pretty simple technique. I think I think if he cut it onto like something better it, it, it probably would have sounded better but i mean it's like you know when they sent that i think like the mars explorer or whatever out in the space they put all these like diagrams about humans and stuff and they put a vinyl record right like, right on yeah. the thing with like an instruction and like some geometric pattern on like how to build a tone arm you know so they could fucking play it back and it's it's it, it, it's really interesting um because when you think about like someone i was talking to someone the other day and i realized like the whole like kind of record store, like the way that records and kind of stuff are revolve around vinyl, especially you know, that do predominantly in used, it's like completely divorced from the actual music industry. Like these things have been not part of that. Like these records left there, like, you know, maybe even when you're talking about like a Led Zeppelin record, that's, you know, been in, you know, circulating through private collections and stuff. It's a really interesting thing when you think about it. Cause like, it's like this whole kind of, trade that that has popped up around selling these like you know artifacts basically um and it's 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 a whole other industry and the bands don't actually you know like yeah, they, nobody they don't get paid like a, right do you think about like a you know a rare soul single that sells for like four thousand dollars or something you know it's like the artist who did it if they're even still alive they're not seeing a penny from that i mean they probably never got a penny from the original recording you know like or you know they they probably spent money going into a recording studio themselves and never recouped but then their yeah. records sold for like thousands of dollars you know um yeah it's weird it's weird to think about that i mean i'm not worried about love zeppelin records selling for anything they they have plenty of money you know so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah it's just like you think about like these old hardcore bands have records that sell for like hundreds of dollars you know and you oh know, yeah like uh what's that real I mean, that real crazy one it's like a chung king maybe it's, oh yeah uh, what yeah. band is it? Yeah, the Judge yeah. record. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Right, it's like four thousand yeah. dollars or something. Right, and I don't think any of those guys are hurting for dinner, you know. <laughs> but no, it's, it's just it, nuts. But it's nuts. And yeah, when you think about it, and it's just like, 
And I guess a lot of times, like when you meet these guys, you have these records that like maybe they didn't make a lot of money in the music industry, but their records are worth a lot of money. A lot of them are real humble and kind of nice about it. They're like, yeah, you know, some of them get a little bit of a career bump out of it, like they get to perform again because of it. But yeah, um, but it, it must be really weird to think like this thing I made is you know like whatever 1968 that I made no money on. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, played on the radio. It's on a TV ad, or, like, it, you know... It must or be that, like, you journey. made in 1992 that you might actually still have, like, credit card debt from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, like, exactly. <laughs> or you may still have a box of them sitting around. You're like, oh, right. Oops. Yeah, look, I've got a whole bunch of them over here. Nobody wants these things. Yeah. And then there's just tons of stuff you look at, and you're like, man, no one's ever going to want this crummy record ever again. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of those around too. And um, then I've seen those go up in price too. Like I've seen things that like, you know, just going to use stores. Like I'd see things that were not, you know, like they there'd just be tons of them. Maybe because the band was from here or something like that, or or like kind of like played more shows here or something. So they had a lot of used kind of stuff coming through. And then one day they're just they're going up in price and. You know, all of a sudden they're not in the discount seven inch. Yeah, that is very true. I've seen that too. Yeah, you know, it's you know, it's it's random. You never you never know. You never know. So you ended up running Steady Sounds for how long? Uh, for ten years. Yeah, it was a while, and then you ended up closing. Um, what was yeah. the thought behind that? Uh, well, uh, wife and I wanted to move. Uh, we were we were looking to move. She's from New England, and she wanted to move back to New England. You know, it's just like families up here and everything, and it just made a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. um, so I just, yeah, decided it's like, yeah, that'll be it. Well, let's close it. You know, close the store. But um, yeah, well, that's was, a pretty good it, reason. Yeah, that's a good reason. <laughs> I mean, comparatively uh, to like. <laughs> I mean, what I could I, be a reason in closing a record store? Yeah, I mean, I could have, could have, you know, yeah, whatever, I could have sold it or whatever, but I just was like, yeah, I'm just, you know, it's going to close it, you know. The lease was was ending, and they were going to raise the rent. Um, uh, yeah, that it was, they do it was, that. Yeah, they do that, and it was going to be. It's like kind of. It, it was basically double what we were paying, and and God, we were like, I know, I know, we were like, uh, so. You know, I was doing it uh, half. I was running half the store to Blue Bones Vintage, mm-hmm. um, and we're, they're still open. They they just moved, but um, you know, I think we were both kind of like they didn't want to stay in the space because it was going to be double the rent. Um, they even looked into trying to buy the building, and that wasn't going to happen, um, and or negotiate something, but it, it just it wasn't in the cards. You know, they were just like, we're going to raise the rent. You know, that's that's the way it is. And uh, so they moved in a better space. He actually got less rent than they were paying before. <laughs> so it worked out wow. for them. They were closer to campus. Um, but, you know, regardless of whether I moved or not, like I would have had to try to find another space. Like I wouldn't have wanted to stay there. And But it's things like being in a space for 10 years. Of course, you accumulate a lot of junk. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. You're not cleaning that that well. You're just like piling stuff up in the back. But, uh you know, it's like I would have had to find another space. I, you know, it it would have been ridiculous trying to play double. And well, you yeah. guys were in a really, you know, probably the most highly trafficked part of actual downtown for something related to arts and culture. I mean, you guys were right in the the middle of it, um, like that. Cause, you know, because you have the the um, first Friday's art walks and all that. Yeah, stuff. the first Friday. Yeah, but, you know, when first Friday's art walk was a thing. Um, you know, like why when we opened, you know, it was hard to get people to go to still go downtown in Richmond, you know, yeah. in, in 2010, you know, it was like, right. I mean, even, even in, you know, 1992, it was kind of like, you're like, you didn't really go down there, you know, you didn't go downtown. Yeah. Like I remember there was a foot locker downtown and so I'd go there and get shoes and, you know, but, uh, it's like, otherwise, and there was like so many cool, like weird shops down there, you know, just like, was that like Sixth street marketplace? That was Sixth street marketplace. Yeah. They were still open and they had a food walker in there. Yeah. They're just uh, like death now. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's weird. Somebody told me recently there's a foot locker now, like where that, um, 
There was a, that Starbucks that burned down. Uh, yeah, yeah. Broad Street. There's like a Foot Locker there now. It's just like it's funny. They're creeping back in. They're like, it's like, oh yeah, we'll go back down to Richmond. Sure. You know, we we waited long enough. We'll come back. Yeah. So when we first opened, it was like tell to get people downtown. But the saving grace was that on the first Fridays it was packed. I mean, it was jam packed full of people, and we would just we basically make our rent in one day. You know, like oh wow. Uh, it was, yeah, it, it, those were, like, really lucrative. And over time, yeah, I guess there was the whole thing was, like, there were some shootings and there was some violence down there. and People stopped showing up, you know, uh, yeah. because of that. But right when we opened, for the first few years, it was, like, those were, like, gangbuster days, you know, and lot, there were just so many people down there. But then people started, you know, more businesses opened and there was more going on downtown. So people just, you know, it, it got to the point like our weekends were just jammed, you know, like a jam packed full of people. It was just like it was so busy. Like our Saturdays were like, like people were just coming to Richmond. They were visiting. We we're kind of like, wow, this is pretty, pretty wild. <laughs> like our Saturdays, literally half the people came into the business were from out of town who were just visiting because they heard Richmond was kind of cool, you know, and there right. were restaurants and shopping. And we were like, that's when I started realizing like, wow, things have really changed around here. And then pandemic happened. And I noticed that like there was a thing that happened maybe like five or six years ago where a whole, like, like almost the, the culture of the city like change. Cause I think like a lot of the people that were, you were seeing like starting to come visit, like they actually just started moving here and yeah. it, like yeah. there are people yeah. you'd be talking to and they'd be like, yeah, this place has like class four rapids. And, and to oh, a yeah, Richmonder, totally. I'm like, yes, I heard that a lot. Oh, you <laughs> mean like, in the river? Like, yeah, don't go in the fucking river. You mean that river. gross river? No, I know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I got a like, in the river. What the right? Heck? Like every, as a Richmonder, it's like all I know about the river is the infections my friends have had it. Like, <laughs> don't go in it after you get a tattoo. Well, you know, um, everyone's like, it, it, but you know, it's like when you're visiting some place and you're walking around, like, wow, this seems like a really cool place. And the locals are like, are you kidding me? This place sucks. Like, it is the same thing where we were looking at the very negative thing, like because of things like that, like. Like uh, my buddy stepped on a needle at the river. <laughs> like right, I got a right. staff infection, or I've been shot at a couple of times here. But <laughs> yeah. most people are looking at through these rose-colored lenses of like, "Wow, look, look at your river. This is great. Look at these buildings." And it's funny because that's the way my wife. You know, like the first time I ever brought my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time down to Richmond. She was like, "This is like a magical wonderland." <laughs> like, like the restaurants are dirt cheap. You know, like you yeah. get like quality food and drinks for nothing and there's like all these beautiful buildings around and it's like not you know like you know, there's this river you know and and i just remember it being like oh man that's you know like i got mugged here <laughs> i like you know that's where somebody shot at me you know like so yeah so but then i was like yeah, yeah you know richmond is really great and so moving back was like a really good move and it was like it, it was kind of cool to come back to it and not think as negatively as I did before. Right. Like, it was basically just survival, you know. It's just like I can't believe I got out of this place alive. Uh what are you doing now? Like as far as like music, as far as you gonna open a new shop? Like what wh- what's your plans and stuff right now? Um really right now it's just kind of surviving the pandemic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, it, yeah. I, yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I've been kind of keeping steady sounds alive, just like selling online. Um, okay, like discogs and stuff. Yeah, discogs and on Instagram, which is a great place, great platform to sell things at. You know, like uh, sometimes a little scrolling is not so bad if you're looking for records. But uh, that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, you know, I put every day. I think about like, what if I had another store? But I, you know, I don't know if that's something I want to do right now. Um, get back into it right. I mean, I never really, it never really ended. You know, I've been selling since the day I closed. I'm still selling online, so that's what I'm doing. Right. But I do have all the, yeah, yeah I already had tons of stocks. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I had all the stuff I got to get rid of. Uh, but you know, I do miss, I miss interactions with people. I miss having a store. Like, I, I, I feel like retail is kind of in my blood, you know. So, you know, okay. I, I grew up, I grew up with like, 
family that owned retail stores and did a lot of retail. So it's just sort of like this thing I grew up with and it's hard to leave it. Um, and I do miss the people and the interactions and the conversations. Um, I mean, musically, I haven't really, I've been kind of dormant. I haven't really done too much. So, um, well, look forward to hearing what you have to come up with and seeing what you do in the future, man. I, I know steady sounds and, um, you know, it was a, it was a really cool, uh, thing, you know, you kind of, you were kind of like one of the first of like a, a few, like in kind of things, I guess that kind of sprung off from plan nine, you know, folks that had worked there, like these like record stores and stuff in Richmond, um, that kind of supplement, supplemented that for, cause for many years it was just kind of plan nine. <laughs> yeah, it was really plan nine. And then there was, uh, there was sound hole, I guess. Right. right. Yeah. But Which, after they closed, it was. I think just plan nine for like five or six. Years. That was it. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. And then they were closing their stores everywhere. And yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I do miss it. You know, I, I miss not having the shop down there, but you know, I would say it's things come and go, you know, everything ebbs and flows. So, you know, there'll, there'll be more. <laughs> Richmond definitely is right now. I mean, it's probably have more record stores in it right now than it ever has before. And that concludes my interview with Marty Key. You can find Marty on Instagram at Steady Sounds, and you can find this and other episodes of this podcast at VariousThingsPodcast.com or via your preferred streaming service. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.